and welcome to Room Escape Divas, your podcast on everything escape rooms. This week we are really excited to have Noah Nelson of the No Proscenium podcast. Woohoo! My name is Manda, and I am actually alone today. Mike and Ruby couldn't make it today, and Errol is spending time with his family because he loves them very much. But I am very, like I said, I am very excited to welcome Noah here today. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having me on the show today. So why don't we start by having you explain about yourself, your background, and your podcast, which focuses on immersive theater. Yeah. Um, so I have, uh, I've been two things my entire life. I've been a theater kid and I've been a public journalist. So that started when I was in high school and continued through college. I have a degree in theater and uh, my night job was working for an outlet that used to be called Youth Radio which was a sort of a third party producer of content for NPR. Uh, so there's, there's a, there's a greater than uh, 0% chance that uh, if you've been, if you listen to NPR long enough uh, for enough years, you've actually heard my voice uh, on the radio about, well, about nine years ago, actually nine years ago this week. Oh my God. Nine years ago, like today, wow, it's my anniversary, uh, the day we're recording this on the 28th of June. Sometime this week, nine years ago, I moved down to Los Angeles, and when I moved down to L.A., uh, I was trying to like kind of like part of it was I was going to get away from the job, but instead it sort of followed me down and I wound up covering things on uh, the tech and entertainment beat. I got really interested in uh, at the time there was a lot of interest in transmedia, which was all about multi-platform storytelling and sort of how does a story get told on the Internet and jump from YouTube videos to live events and then back to like a Twitter account and looping back to the YouTube video, that kind of fun stuff. And this this was um, this was before escape rooms uh, or even uh, immersive theater had kind of uh, cracked through uh, the public consciousness. So as part of covering that, covering that transmedia scene, I got uh, I got involved in a, a little tiny group of folks who were kind of uh, ex theater heads uh, or current theater heads and who were either making transmedia or making VR or they were working in Imagineering or they were working on reality television. And we were really interested in that live component. We were interested in this idea of, um, stuff that, you know, maybe started out as a story that was being told online and then manifested in some kind of event, the way a lot of the ARGs were doing. Like we were very excited about something like the year zero ARG, which culminated in a Nine Inch Nails concert, which then everyone got like chased out of. Like we thought that was just like one of the coolest things possible. Or we were very interested in something like the Jejun Institute. Uh, and it didn't hurt that Sarah Thatcher, who was one of the people who produced the Jejun Institute, had just come down to W, uh, WDI. Uh, she's working on some interesting projects these days. Uh, and uh, she was one of the people at these dinner parties we were holding. Um, I, we were, we were, you know, we went from talking about it to thinking about producing stuff. And I went on a fact finding mission uh, back to New York to check out Sleep No More and check out uh, Then She Fell. And it was at Then She Fell that I absolutely um, became convinced that not only was this the kind of work I was interested in making. I was interested in seeing more of it in the world and that if we were going to do this kind of work, we, we damn well better made sure that there was an audience for it. And this is, this is a, 
little over five years ago. When I came back, we took that, a little internal mailing list and I told everyone, look, we're, the little notes that I put around everybody, we're going to do this on MailChimp now and we're going to start building audience for the work in Los Angeles. I, I First, I tried to see if anyone else was tracking it. And not only was no one tracking in LA, no one was tracking it specifically in New York. And so that became first became the NoPro uh you know, mailing list. And then I was writing some reviews of that stuff for some, some other theater uh, blogs around here uh, with the idea that we were putting a spotlight on work in order to get more attention to it, in order to build up audience uh, for everybody. Um, Around the same time, uh, as as you guys well know, um, and, and the dates kind of elude me a little bit, but by that point, I think like scrap was doing stuff up in San Francisco for certain, I mean, that had been happening for a while and like that kind of round the world thing where, you know, stuff started happening in Hungary and, and other places and escape rooms kind of landed back in, uh, the United States and landed in Southern California in particular. Um, and so the first story for NPR about escape rooms, I did, um, maybe within that, I think possibly even within that first year, like I went to like maze rooms and I went to the basement and, uh, maze rooms, I think just had one, I think they had just opened their second outfit, um, or they were in the middle of building like, uh, for, for the historians among you, they were building the jungle game, uh, when I was talking to them. Um, and the basement I think had one expansion out so far when I talked to Caden. Um, and that was an NPR, like didn't understand what an escape room was. Um, it hadn't crossed over into quite into pop culture they had yet, but it was booming, uh, in, in LA. Uh, and, and it was, things were popping off other places. Sorry, would that be around 2013? Oh gosh. I mean, I could, I could look it up. Like, I mean, I will just, I will do the Google thing real fast and I'll just be, plug my name into, um, <laughs> plug my name, no Nelson NPR escape room. Let's see. That came out in, um, no, it was actually, it was actually in 2015. Oh, 2015. Okay. Yeah. 2015 was when that one was happening. So, you know, escape rooms were happening and had been going on for a while at that point, but NPR kind of doesn't kind of lags. Like I knew that they were going on, you know, well before, you know, we, it took us a while to pitch them on the idea. Right. So, but, uh, it was still early enough in the cycle that I think maze rooms had any meaning was just starting their first expansion. Um, like they had the motel room, I think it'd been up and running for a while. What I started to see in all this was that, you know, between the escape rooms and the immersive theater and stuff that was going on in VR, this was sort of a hydra. Like there was a way in which there's this, the these these storytelling and entertainment tools, this this whole toolbox. It's all interrelated. Um, there are lessons to be learned and techniques to be borrowed back and forth across these very specific disciplines, um, which when combined properly make for really potent work and you know when combined wrong uh make for some horrible horrible experiences um so it's 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 a little bit of alchemy it's a little bit of cooking uh but the the tastiest most amazing stuff i've experienced um have definitely borrowed uh, liberally across all, all the various disciplines. Um, and one of my favorite things this year has been, 
uh, on the VR side has been Vader Immortal, uh, which is out for the Oculus Quest and I think is either out now or coming soon for the Oculus Rift. And, you know, I'm a big Star Wars fan, so, like, that's that's a low barrier uh, for me. But, but it mixes together uh, the kind of some of the immersive theater storytelling techniques um, of sort of this, you know, silent protagonist thing that you've got going on uh, which sort of mixes a little bit of sleep no more with, a, you know, a little bit of a video game. And then there are elements that are very light puzzle solving, uh, like exceptionally light to the point where it's like, I, I wanted, I wanted more. Um, uh, but also puzzle solving that feels diegetic. Um, so it's not like a puzzle for the sake of a puzzle. It's like, no, you've got to hack open this door and, and, and get it open. Uh, but you're really hacking it open. And the next time you come across one, it's similar, but, but kind of different. So you almost like you're building up a skill. Um, and you're walking around space and you're fiddling with things in order to advance a story. Um, and that's, that's what I think is, um, one of the great ways that, this side of the immersive universe can impact the other sides of the immersive universe. The, um, the, the wisdom, the knowledge and uh, the dedication to creating, um, interactivity that feels both organic and it just makes you feel like you're clever as hell for figuring it out. Yes, absolutely agreed. It's really interesting to see what, aspects of immersive theater are being brought over to digital games and uh, live action games and it's it's funny actually i feel like the immersive theater community in la is is pretty large at least compared to to other cities where where immersive theater is i feel like la is just like this mecca of immersive theater yeah well there's there's a couple of, I mean, I guess it depends on if we're talking, I mean, it's true both ways, but like if we're talking about the fan community or talking about the creator community, if we're talking about the creator community, yeah, uh, it is, it is quite large. Um, in fact, if anything, I would say that New York probably has a bigger, uh, fan base for immersive theater in one, because it's been running long, longer and you have things like sleep no more, which run all the time. Uh, LA doesn't have a standing show. Um, much to our chagrin and there's, um, and there've been some attempts, uh, but there's, there's a lot of things kind of working against that. Um, San Francisco had a standing show for a while. Uh, but that one, um, it ran, it ran for the better part of five years. Um, and it's to sort of run its course. Um, you know, it, it was a lot more performative and a lot less interactive, um, even, even then something like sleep no more. So, uh, in a lot of ways that was a speakeasy up in San Francisco and a lot of ways it's kind of immersive light. Um, so it doesn't entirely surprise me that, um, it, it didn't have as robust legs as it might have, uh, because there's a lot of push to it. Um, like, like people are performing and there's not a lot of interactivity and sort of the barrier between, uh, our world and their world is pretty strong, even though unlike, unlike in sleep no more, you're, you're not wearing a mask. Um, but the funny thing about sleep no more is that you wear the mask, uh, they give you these kind of elaborate masks to wear and indeed everyone's got them and that creates a, a level of anonymity and it, and it also, you know, 
makes it harder to talk. Uh, so you're, you know, you're told to be quiet. You're given this mask. You're basically told, Hey, you're, you're not really here, but because you have the freedom to go anywhere, uh, within reason, uh, you, you find yourself with this, uh, sense of agency, a sense of physical agency. And the, the whole thing's nonlinear, uh, in that it loops three times. The thing in San Francisco, it was linear. It went once, uh, and it was uh, this elaborate soap opera that was very verbal and sleep no more has like almost no dialogue if no dialogue whatsoever. Uh, so uh, kind of hard to follow, uh, you know, um, and, and just, you know, not, not optimized for the space and the form that they were necessarily in, but he had a pretty robust run despite all that. The, yeah. But like it's, it, it ultimately comes down to like space and rent. Um, is really <laughs> right. Uh, space rent permits, these, these sorts of things that, you know, I know that everyone in the, in the escape room world as well, kind of can struggle with at times. Um, I mean, what was it famously, I think crossroads, uh, who are down in orange County, you know, I think they were looking originally at, you know, Burbank, um, was one thing someone's told me that they were looking at Burbank as a place. And I, I know for a fact that they moved down, uh, to, you know, like literally move, move down to be closer to, uh, their location because in Orange County, they were able to set up. Whereas, you know, towns in LA County, it was harder. Yeah. Rent is, it's definitely a thing. Uh, yeah. I don't know what kind of deals you have to make with the devil to be able to get a good deal on rent, to be able to have such a longstanding immersive theater show, but, I know in Toronto it's really hard. Rent rent in general is just really hard in Toronto and I'm I mean the the longest running immersive show that in in recent memory that I've heard of was a, is a show called Hogtown which has run the past two summers in Toronto. I don't know if they're running again this year, but it that was in a historical house and I think they kind of cut a deal with the historical house. You know, it's it's a heritage type thing. So um, at least that's like I'm just I'm just guessing at this point. But uh, same kind of thing. Very dialogue heavy show. Very linear show. Uh, you go in. You you all see the same three scenes to begin with. Like you all start in the same place, and then you're just kind of let loose. But like you said, like if you walk into a room and there's a conversation going on, and you have no idea what's going on but it seems kind of fun i guess and i i actually had a lot of fun with it 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 reminded me of another show that i had only heard of actually um called uh, tamara yeah tamara or tamara uh, i've heard it pronounced both ways and that one that one stretches back um that was one of the early shows of this type uh it ran in the 80s in um in LA um, and then I think it had a couple of locations in Los Angeles, if memory serves. I know that it was, it was definitely at the Legion Hall, uh, in Hollywood for a certain amount of time, which is a rather big, elaborate place. Uh, and I think it might've been at the Greystone Manor, but do not quote me on that. That's definitely a fact, fact check that one for later. Yeah. I actually remember learning about it in university. I actually went to the library and got the script for Tamara and I remember reading it as a student. I think, oh, this was back in, God, I'm dating myself now, um, 2003, I think. Yeah, so. Oh, so, so long ago compared to when I was in school. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
yeah. And, and I mean, I remember reading it and being just so flabbergasted with how insane the organization for this thing would have to be. You know, it had directions like Mary leaves scene 1A and goes to scene 5F. And I, I just, I was, you know, it seemed insane, but I was also really excited to see things like that. And I thought, oh, there's never going to be anything like this again. But now here we are today. Here, here we are. I need, yeah, I need to get my hands on, on that script. And like, uh, it, it had a, it had a run in New York from what I know. And the run in LA was, uh, Angelica Houston played, uh, I think the lead role for a while. Um, so it attracted, attracted some talent and attention. Uh, well, you know, like Evan Rachel Wood took a turn at Sleep No More. So did Neil Patrick Harris. Um, you know, there's, there's a great love of this form, particularly that show from, from people, not long runs necessarily, but they definitely took a stab at it. Um, I mean, I think one of the things is that, you know, there's a novelty factor to the form that when it hasn't been around for a while kind of blows people out of the water. Um, and people who've never seen something like it, you know, they'll come to a show which might just be like a grade C show for those of us who see a lot of it. And they'll come out ecstatic. They'll be like, this is like nothing I've ever seen before. Oh my God. And it's like, well, let me. Oh, it's like people with their first escape rooms. I mean, it could be a terrible escape room by enthusiast standards, but yeah, you know, people come out and they're like, oh, wow, that was so much fun. And you're just kind of like, oh, yeah, that was great. Yeah. Yeah. No, we, we had some, I've been to shows like that and like, I've watched people like, you know, they come around and I'm like, wasn't that amazing? I was like, no, that was like grade, grade C. And they're like, you don't know what you're talking about. And I'm like, actually, I really know what I'm talking about. Cause I've seen six other things just like it this week that did it better. If you like this, you're really going to love this thing that's next door. I have to say, I am super jealous. There is just so much immersive theater where you are. <laughs> well, I mean, it comes, I mean, the nice thing is we've got a fair number of companies that, that pop up work, but again, it's kind of, there's a, there's a difficulty here with the city. Um, I mean, we had this incident that happened a few years ago, um, back in 2016, November, 2016, up in Oakland, uh, the ghost ship fire and, uh, absolute horrific tragedy. Um, 30 people lost their lives in an illegal warehouse party. um, there I had there were I didn't lose anyone directly, but like I had three different friend groups lose people um, and just really shook, you know, the the underground art scene and the music scene in, in the Bay Area to the core and then had the secondary fallout of just uh, building and safety regulators up and down the West Coast and beyond just started cracking down on DIY spaces, cracking down on live, live work spaces, um, anything that was like a warehouse party. And we're three years into it. Um, and you know, the, the creative community here in LA has been organizing, but it's a bunch of broke artists trying to lobby the city and running up against, you know, requirements like, well, no, you really need a lobbyist to do this. And that's going to cost you $10,000. And it's like $10,000, like no one's making that kind of money. Um, so, and, and it's a chicken, the egg problem. Like no one's got a show that's financially viable enough to make the kind of money that it requires to hire a lobbyist to make the connections, to get into 
flip the switches and get something really going on. Um, so we, we do what we can with sweat equity. Um, Tommy Haunton, who you, you may or may not know, uh, he's one of the creators of stash house. He's been, he's been heading up, um, uh, our permit committee for a couple of years now and, you know, doing, doing, doing a bang up job on a volunteer basis, but we know we've, we've run smack dab into some serious problems. And, and, and that's, um, that's one of the things that, you know, this, this whole, these industries we've got industries like these, these art forms kind of go back and forth between talking about them as industry and art. Um, sometimes I just like say domain, right? So the domains, the domains we, we have here, um, because they, they look like a duck, but quack like a fish. No one knows what to do with them because fish aren't supposed to quack. And, and, and so you can't get a straight answer out of regulators. And if you can't get a straight answer out of regulators, they kind of want you to go away if you don't fit inside a bureaucratic box. Um, I know there's, I know there's some people who think that I'm obsessed with rules and regulations, um, in, in the community in LA. Uh, and honestly, like I am, but not in the way they think. I, I just want stuff to disappear into the rafters and I just want clear ways so that people can get creative without endangering people's lives. You know, um, there's, there's no need to do that unless people want to go off and, you know, play jackass like which is fine but like do that on your own time because at the end of the day having seen what happened with ghost ship you know the people who were responsible for that fire they just weren't thinking they thought they had something cool which was this kick-ass live work co-work warehouse space with some uh, where they were like taking pallets and turning them into stairwells and creating lofts and just repurposing everything and getting creative. And, you know, they did their own electrical and they created a death trap because they, they were just making it up as they went along. And the truth is, is that, you know, <laughs> a competent electrician <laughs> and a carpenter kind of knows what they're doing could have kept that thing going for a very long time and it just probably would have gotten squeezed out by rent at the end of the day and not because 30 people lost their lives. And that's, that's why I, I get um, obsessive and adamant about people being smart and about there being resources to help people be smart um, about doing any of this work, be it immersive theater or escape rooms or, or anytime you got, anytime you got bodies in, uh, bodies in space, you need to make that just solid. It only takes once to have a large backlash like that. Oh yeah. Like what was it? Was it Poland where a thing just happened earlier this year? Yes, it was Poland. Uh, five girls died when a fire broke out in an escape room and they did not have a way to leave. The the room was actually locked and the game master could not get to them. And it was really horrible and tragic. We actually focused a, a whole episode of this podcast on the incident and the importance of safety regulations and talked a lot more in depth about it there. Uh, but 
you know, just to reiterate, it's a shame that it took something like this to make people realize the importance of these safety regulations and why we need to adhere to them, even if it seems annoying at the time. And, you know, it doesn't happen nearly as much now. Actually, it doesn't happen at all now. But back when we were first doing escape rooms, you know, the the length to which owners would defend locking a room we we would ask like why do you need to lock that room or can you not lock us in is there an emergency key is there or do you can you just leave it open and their response sometimes would be well it's not realistic it's not immersive if i don't lock the door how can you be in an escape room if the door's not locked and you know i would always respond okay but we're humans you know we can use our imaginations we don't we can pretend that door is locked you don't have to be you know, it doesn't have to be 100% realistic for you to be immersed in something. We have that capacity as humans. Yeah, no, like there's, there's a, we have the same thing in our, in our world, right? Where it's like, you know, sometimes it just feels like there's a failure of imagination. I mean, I actually like to point to, um, I'll, I'll put it this way, right? Um, whether I'm going through Meow Wolf down in Santa Fe, which is this amazing, I don't know if, I don't know if you guys have talked yeah, about it. Yeah, I've heard of it. Okay. Yeah. So it's this, uh, and Disclosure, they used to be a sponsor of mine. They might be a sponsor again. So like, you know, yes, I've gotten money from them, but honest, but <laughs> it's, it's, it's been, it's been like over six months. So, and I still like them. Uh, so like they're a former sponsor of mine and maybe one day again, but, um, you know, uh, they do such a good job uh, at what they do. It's this, elaborate art installation that that were these multiple art installations that are that you can traverse your way through that have some interactive points but mostly it's just this incredibly immersive art environment uh and at at the heart of which is a music venue um so like that's another revenue stream for them and it attracts families and kids and 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 stoners and like every, every type of person imaginable and it's just it's overwhelming in a lot of ways and it's all packed into an old bowling alley is you know uh they they convinced george r R. martin to buy them the bowling alley and give them a good deal on rent again it's just back to rent and from that they've made a billion dollar art company and it was a collective of 300 art kids from santa fe and now they're opening up in vegas and denver where they they just got to the top of their build out um, they're hiring people left and right. They're hiring friends of mine away from Los Angeles to go work. And they're like, why are you taking all my people? Um, and they're, and they're, they've got plans for Phoenix and for DC and notice like they're going to, they're going to, you know, markets, you know, below the big, the big two or even the big three or even the big four, right? If they drop something in Houston, that would be the biggest market they were in. Uh, so very savvy, very smart about that. Um, and like harnessing this like incredible chaotic, uh, artist energy. Like I went to Meow Wolf and I got so turned around that I had to like step outside because I, I, I was overwhelmed by it as a sheer number of people. Like I started to have almost an anxiety attack, which hadn't happened in a while. Uh, also, you know, I just driven and blah, blah, blah. But I, I got unchill. I went in later again and I went, I got some behind, I got like to go in during off hours and like without people in there, it was like super great and just chill. And I was very much in, in a happy space. Um, so this is this amazing environment. I started telling the story because in there, all the exits are clearly marked, but I'm not noticing them unless I'm looking for it. Right. You can be inside this 
this crazy like pink ice cavern with uh, a mastodon skeleton uh, or an alien mastodon skeleton. And yeah, there are two signs that have your bog standard exit signs, but I don't know some, or when I'm going around galaxy's edge, uh, but two, uh, for star Wars at Disneyland, you know, like there's, there's, there's sharp spins in the bathroom. There's, uh, now mind you, they've, they've touched them up with paint a little bit, though. So there's all the things that have got to be there, but they're able to make them either fade out a little bit into the background and, and kind of mesh them up, or they've done such a good job with everything else that you like, you don't notice the sprinklers. Or if, if the like, I mean, I, I was look, looking pretty intently, like the, um, the sprinklers are there and that's obvious enough, but the, um, you know, the, the, the rods for the sprinklers have been touched up with paint so that they blend into the background or the sharp spin was painted, uh, in such a way that it was like slightly different colors, but still clearly the sharp spin in the bathroom. There's just, it's just these little, these little touches. Uh, my favorite one is, uh, in the, in the line to the Millennium Falcon, you know, they've got a bog standard OSHA rail. Uh, that you got that that you can hold on to and it's like super industrial looking like, you know You go to Star Tours and it's like, you know slick and whatnot But this is just like because you're supposed to be going through a mechanic shop Like they've made it as bog simple as possible But there's also these two part parts where there are these what look like these uh, Structural beams that look like they've been melted through with a laser in order to keep uh, in order to make way for that railing and so almost like it's in conversation with OSHA because Disney famously a couple of years ago got hit by OSHA uh, and had to do, make a bunch of changes to some of the rides and had to literally weld weld a railing in on the drawbridge so that the drawbridge uh, at the castle in Disneyland can no longer close. They can't raise it. They can't raise it up anymore, which was a functioning jaw, raw, drawbridge, and now it's not. Uh, so here's here's the Imagineers being like, oh, okay, well, we're gonna get creative with it. Uh, and so this idea that you can't, you know, I, I've started referring to, um, immersion as, uh, cause mostly cause I don't like saying immersion, uh, just because it always reminds me of scuba diving. So weirdly enough, <laughs> or drowning, uh, like the immersion on this is really good. It's like, all uh, does that mean we can breathe? So I've started, I started, uh, betraying some of my junior high, uh, fan roots and I've started referring to it, uh, as kayfabe like they do in wrestling. Um, so, uh, you don't have to, which is like the fiction around wrestling, uh, cause which is like, you know, wrestling is, you know, totally not fake quote unquote. Uh, it's so real. Um, and that magic is kayfabe. Like everyone always acting like the big put on it's the carnival thing. So, um, you, uh, you don't have to break kayfabe uh, to get your exit sign in. You don't have to, you know, you can, you can go into dialogue um, with the requirements. And indeed, if you, one of the things that powers an artist or should power an artist is limitations. Um, if you've got a limitation you're up against, working around it actually can create some really amazing work. Yeah, I agree with you on that. And, you know, I do love being immersed into a world. I do love it when it is realistic. And if and if a creator or an owner or designer or whoever can can achieve that, so much the better. But if, you know, I'm I if I'm in a room and I see an exit sign, I'm not going to sit there going, "Guys, come on. We're supposed to be in ancient Egypt." It depends though, I think. You know, it depends on the actual game because I think if the game itself is bad, that's when I start 
you know, that's when I start noticing everything. Um, actually, uh, there's a book I have on video game writing and there's a chapter on it on suspension of disbelief. And I really, I really like how they phrase suspension of disbelief. Basically, when, when you experience a story, whether it's a movie or a game or a book or, or whatever, you're entering a pact with that creator. And the pact is that, listen, I, if you set up a world, sorry, if you set up, if you set up a world that's consistent, that's, if you have a great story, if the experience that I'm having is great enough, I will suspend my disbelief for a short while and purposely gloss over those minor details that are slightly more inconsistent. And usually that, that works. However, if the world is inconsistent, if the story is crap, if, if the whole experience is just this crazy ride of inconsistency, then suddenly those little details become a lot more annoying. And that's when people start walking out of theaters. Well, and, and something that applies to both immersive theater and escape rooms very specifically is if the thing you have people doing is interesting enough, right? Like what, what immersive theater, and it doesn't even have to be you know, interactive in the narrative sense or even interactive in the sense of being a puzzle or something. But if just the injunction, if the thing you're doing, the role you're given, the part you're given to play, even if it's minor is interesting enough. If you, there's a, there was a theater piece here last year where we found ourselves in like a blanket fort with a kid who was telling us about the monster that lived in their closet and by the end of that sequence, we were fighting the monster by shooting it with Nerf guns and hurling beanie babies at it. And it was amazing. Now, the whole piece was amazing, but I never thought I'd be fighting a child's nightmares. Um, and it was a beautiful moment, but it's so simple. Like, what was I doing in that moment? I was taking beanie babies out of a basket and I was pelting some poor actor wearing like a creature from the black lagoon paper mache outfit. Right. Like that's, that's all I was doing. Super simple. And there was some, some good lighting going on, just bog simple stuff. But what I was doing was an interesting enough idea was fun in and of itself because it's very fun to throw beanie beanie bees at people. And, and, and that's just it, right? You know, um, I remember doing uh, the Get the F Out uh, uh, virus room, uh, Bob Glaberman's room, and there were, there were certain puzzles uh, like the, the more I, I love, I love a good physical puzzle. And so there were certain physical puzzles in there, uh, that I just, I, I love the thing I was doing in that moment. Um, you know, what, what I was being asked to do and how, how it manifested, um, just got me very excited because it was, it's just moments like that. We were like, I can't believe I'm doing X. I, I know that, you know, for instance, um, I know the basement rooms are often like, kind of can be controversial because of, uh, how, um, you know, because, because everything is built into them. Um, you wind up like doing stuff with like electrical sockets and other things that like, you know, like freaks, freaks out some people I know. Um, at the same time, like it's, 
it's one of those things where you're like, oh, I can't believe I'm doing blank, you know, uh, when you can provide an actually totally safe environment and in that moment. And, and I think the thing that I, that I hope fans would remember in general, and I really hope creators take to heart is, you know, it's about these experiences are, are as much about what we remember doing, uh, and what we remember feeling. And I used to say about film or television that, you know, the final, the final cut was always in the head of the audience. Uh, and it's like, what is it that you're remembering an hour later and whether or not you've crafted the lead up to those moments is what you got to really worry about. Are you hitting those moments that people are going to remember? Are you giving them something to take away from it? They will forgive a lot. Um, if you get that stuff right. And what's fun and what's fun is that there's a whole nother dimension, whether it's immersive theater or escape rooms. Um, and indeed the, the crux of uh, immersion immersivity of kayfabe is that you, you get that dimension, right? You know, you get that moment where someone stands there going, and it's usually kind of the moment before, like, I can't believe I'm about to do blank. And then they do it. Right. Like that's, that's the whole phrase. You want that moment where someone goes, I can't believe I'm in, in then she fell. It was, I can't believe I'm about to paint roses with the white rabbit. Like we're going to paint roses. We're going to do this. I, I can't believe I'm going to do that. Right. I never thought I'd be doing that. And then you do it and you know, and it's interesting of itself, but it's that moment of you know, staring the disbelief in the face right? Like that's actually what the power is, right? It's not just suspension of disbelief. It is bringing yourself up to the moment of, I can't believe, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about this right now. I'm realizing that there's a lot of that gets is, is where the power in the extreme haunts come from is like someone like, I can't believe I'm about to be strapped to a bed by a serial killer or whatever the hell it is. Right. You know, like I can't believe I'm about to be like, you know, roasted over open fire. Yeah, I, I don't know why people want to do extreme haunts, but you know, it's there. We're all humans. We all have our things. It's, it's not my bag, but I am interested intellectually in like what the function is. And I'm thinking some part of it, there's, there's some of this, not just suspension of disbelief, but staring disbelief in the face and choosing to step through, right? On the flip side of it, there's a lot of, uh, and this gets back to like you know, the old unsafe practices where like, oh yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna, uh, you know, bolt you to a, a chain and then give you an acetylene torch to escape with. And it's like, what? Like no glasses though. Um, like that sort of stuff is like, you know, you, you're, you're almost assuming everyone's jaded and you're, you're making it actually real and you're not giving people that moment to step across the threshold into the imaginal. You're, you're not giving them that power over magic for them to complete the circuit, right? To not just step into the magic circle, but to be the one to kind of draw the magic circle themselves to, to, to finish it, to be that missing component. Yeah, I guess it's almost like you've built the world, you've given them the framework, and it's up to them to make that last step over. That's exactly it, right? Like, that's, that's the critical thing to agency, right? Um, particularly when it's the agency of make-believe. Are, are you... The, the, oftentimes with performative stuff, with traditional theater, or you'll see when people, like, maybe hate a video game because there's so much push in the story. 
It's like, we're going to perform for you. We're going to, we're going to tell you this story. We're going to take away, we're not going to let you live those moments. We're not going to let you complete the circuit. Right. Uh, I was just, we actually just started the latest Tomb Raider game yesterday and I am now used to playing more indie games, more, uh, well, I'm used to playing video games, which kind of let me experience all of those moments. And Tomb Raider is still one of those games where they cut away. It's time for your cinematic and you sit back and you watch. And Lara Croft was sitting there doing something really interesting, like solving a puzzle or something. Oh, that looks cool. I I wish I was doing it, but I guess, I guess I'll let her do it. Right? I don't know. Right? <laughs> yeah. I still need to I still need to play that one. I played the first two in that series, and then I need to... And now that it's on, like, the Game Pass for Xbox, I can just download it for free, oh, but nice. who has time? And there's some other ones I really want to play. And that's the funny thing. I've gotten to the point in my video game playing career where <laughs> I... In fact, I'll probably like Battletech is on sale somewhere and I hear nothing but good things about it. So it's like 66% off this weekend. I'm like, I'll spend the money and then it'll join this, this Raiders of the Lost Ark ending type fleet of games I now own. It'll just go into a corner digitally and it'll be like, yes, yes. When I retire, I'll play. I literally call it my retirement fund. I have probably like, I think something between like 100 and 300 video games now. Um, I did not think I'd get to that point. Like, I remember seeing somebody post on Facebook about, oh my gosh, I I can't buy any more Steam games. I've got 50 others I haven't played yet. I'm like, okay, you buy a game, you play it. And yet here I am, like, sitting there like, what did I buy? Nope, yeah. Crap. I've, what haven't I played? I think I've, I think I've <laughs> bought all the LucasArts point and clicks like six times over. Like, oh. I have them on Steam and I have them on GOG. And, like, I, I somewhere somewhere in storage, I do have some of the original CDs, uh, although I'd have to find a CD-ROM drive. So, like, it's better to have them digitally. But, like... Uh, and there's, there's no time to play them, but just like knowing, knowing that I could maybe capture that part of my childhood that I missed. Um, it's actually, it's, it's a, it, it is, it, honestly, it's bad. It's really bad. It's probably like the thing that's going to like lead me to homelessness. That, that reassurance that one day, one day it'll, you know, they're there for me. Um, you got to retire someday, yeah. I guess. But but that moment where you're watching the character as opposed to doing it yourself. Although like this is something fascinating. So like we've got a we've got a supply problem that's led to a demand problem in immersive theater. Uh not to get obsessed about the business again. I think I think one of the adv- I think one of the advantages that escape rooms have is the, the supply demand curve seems to be pretty healthy. There's, there's definitely issues around replayability, uh, but a room can have a pretty good lifespan before it needs to be wiped and, and reset and changed over. And uh, a very, a very immersive room in the sense of one that gets a lot of details, right. One that creates those moments um, like the key thing being presence, right? We talk about presence in VR. We talk about presence in immersive theater. And I think presence also happens in a really great escape room where that moment where you're like, I can't believe I'm about to do this. Um, that, that moment, getting to live those moments, those rooms can last a long time. I mean, you know, look at the basement. It's been there for freaking ever. Look at, look at some of these other spots. Um, you know, look at escape my room, look at cutthroat cavern, you know these these are spots that uh, look at the, look at palace games. Um, they 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 draw 
people from outside of our enthusiast world, uh, you know, because they create these moments for people uh, where they, they, they're rewarded for suspending their disbelief. They're not forced to suspend their disbelief. They're rewarded for suspending their disbelief. The supply demand problem we have um, over in, in, in immersive theater uh, means that we, we don't quite hit that, that point where it becomes a wildfire where the demand is such that like it's just constantly sustaining the next and the next and the next. Um, you know, there's, there's a couple of things structurally that needs to happen in order for that to break through. And sometimes I've started to wonder if a thing that for me is, is very alien. Uh, and you'll see why I went on this rant in a second, which is, um, you look at what happens, uh, with people watching Twitch streams and people watching playthroughs of games, right? Like you were just talking about, you know, you were watching Lara Croft uh, solve a puzzle and you're like, why can't I solve that puzzle? Well, then f- for me, the next the next remove from that is like we're watching someone play Lara Croft on Twitch and like you definitely can't solve the puzzle yourself then. And yet that is so some of that's so popular. I mean, granted, a lot of it's esports. So there's a competitive angle as, or there's. Yeah. As as someone who does actually watch Twitch streams and occasionally does my own Twitch streams in which like three people watch. But um, it's. I, w- I would almost I would comment on that with saying like it is actually a little more it feels a little more interactive because because rather than it's almost it's a weird I guess feeling by proxy thing because rather than I'm not just watching a character do something in a story I'm also experiencing somebody's emotional reaction with them uh, so the player who feels more real and they're engaging with their audience as well so usually with these streams you have a chat that's on the side and the people playing the games are actively chatting and engaging with their audience so I, I guess maybe they feel a little more involved that way and it's it's suddenly it's a, a new story. It's not just the story that's happening in the game. It's the story that's happening to the player as well as he's playing the game. He or she. I mean, the reason why I, I I've never gotten into watching those feeds is it reminds me of my childhood, either at an arcade or at a friend's house, watching them play and waiting for my turn. Right. Like it just throws me right back and be like, can this guy die so that I can use my quarter and get my five minutes on Ms. Pac-Man, please. I just want to play. Um, but, but I think that there's something, um, in that, in that idea that, uh, and, and, and that's for me, that's like doubly true with something like, uh, the way people are watching people stream tabletop games. Right? And, and role-playing games in particular. And I'm someone who's like, I ran a vampire LARP when I was in college and I, I ran Mage of the Ascension of all things, which is like, you know, one of the most philosophically heavy duty games there is. And I've run plenty of Star Wars games in my day. Um, and the, I, again, the idea of watching people play, even like really entertaining people and like, there's some really entertaining people out there. And there's a couple of, I, I've, I've enjoyed moments in, in some of those shows, but again, for me, I'm just like, I'm like, why am I not playing? Right. Like, like I just, I got, I, it's not for me to watch, but you know, for a lot of people, there is that and it creates a demand and it, it moves units and it creates, I mean, D&D would not be having the renaissance that it's having. Wizards of the Coast would not be the robust business unit for Hasbro that it currently is. Sorry to break it to everybody. That's what's going on. Um, would not be that 
if it wasn't for these streaming shows. And uh, it's created this this wellspring of demand and it's inspired people uh, to go out and create their own, which is fantastic. And I think that's something that in our constrained supply world of immersive, uh, particularly immersive theater, but any of this immersive stuff, uh, be it be it VR or be it um, be it escape rooms, that's that's a that's a dimension that as a community uh, who cares about the long term um, survivability of this, we should be finding unique and interesting ways to to engage with that instinct to to watch. Um, I almost think about it like the old, uh, I don't know if they, they taught you medieval society this way, uh, 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 where you went to school, but in, in college we were introduced into the idea of, uh, medieval society was divided up into, um, those who fight, those who pray and those who work. And I think, I think in entertainment now we have, you know, those who make those who play and those who watch. And, um, unlike the medieval system where you were born into a caste, uh, or you, if you were, uh, you know, your only, your only def- your only option to change caste was you could become one of those who pray, you know, it's like you could be born into nobility and you're a second son or a third daughter. And it's like, you know what, we're going to give you to the church or you're born into a peasant family. And it was like, we got enough mouths to feed. You're going to the church. Like that was it. And we said, well, you can even choose. You were just sent, right? Like you were just, you had your class character class chosen for you still this triumvirate is uh, a little more fungible. You know, um, those who, you know, we look at someone like Matt Mercer, um, who would be under this rubric initially one of, you know, those who play, but he's also a game master. So he starts to become those who make, and then they publish, you know, the, the source books of the world he's made. Uh, so he's fully in the mode of, of those who make, uh, and you, you definitely can't, you can't make good things in this space if you don't also play if you don't also engage um there's 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 no way to just be a savant at this uh you must you must try the goods yourself that's that's what we that's one of our some of our advice to owners continuously is go play other games and learn what's out there and learn how you feel during the game I mean, one of the things we did here in L.A. with the immersive theater community relatively early on was as, as part of the goal to like make a, 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 make an audience for the work as a whole. I knew that we had to start taking down the barriers between well, what tends to happen in theater scenes and particularly in, in L.A. because it's so spread out is like a theater company will have its audience. Right. Because most theater companies. Yeah. Right. So they, they become uh, they, they end up in a subscriber model. They want to keep their subscribers. End of story. Or they roll out of college. They have their college friends and their college friends, significant others and anyone who works with their company's friends. And that becomes the people who go to those people's shows. Right. It's totally relationship based. Um, in order for there to be a healthy scene or a healthy marketplace, uh, for this stuff, it's got to break past the numbers that one company can make. But in order to do that, you've got to get those creators knowing each other. So within like the first 18 months, I was just inviting everyone over to brunch at my house, 
um, who was making. And I was like, let's just get to know each other. Like you guys should know each other. You guys should see each other's shows, you know, trade, trade tips and tricks, knowing that once they started going to each other's work and talking about each other's work, their audiences would also follow, or there'd be cross pollinization between collaborations between artists that would then create um, an audience that wasn't just like, oh yeah, I go see company X's work. It's like, oh, I go see immersive theater. That's very interesting. And the, the people that you invited over, were they a mix of disciplines, like um, set designers, uh, actors, directors, that kind of thing? Yeah. I mean, we, we tended to be the people who are most active, uh, at the, kind of the heads of their companies just because I am not a rich person. And so if I was, if I was going to make a couple of frittatas and some, uh, Bobby Flay pancakes in the morning, I was really into cooking network at the time, uh, food network and in the cooking channel. Sorry, I got that wrong. Uh, but I was, I was it was a, it was a good brunch. Those, that, <laughs> that pancake recipe scratch making syrup the whole nine yards oh, like i wow. i, I love to cook that, yeah, yeah. I, well i wish oh god <laughs> don't give me you know, if i had fresh maple that'd be another no this is anyway the, the recipe was I'll, I'll put it in the show notes now um <laughs> but um someone brought over a hand espresso press it was awesome um but it was it was a mix of like writers and uh writers and designers uh, people who had been part of that dinner party group of mine that were like interested in transmedia and then people who were representing some of the companies in town. There's this balance between sometimes you need to bring people together around a very specific purpose. Like when you're having a meeting, it's very important that you have a purpose and you know what the intention is. You're not trying to get out of it. You don't feel like you're wasting anybody's time, right? I've been, I've been in too many meetings in my days like that. But when you're having a brunch, uh, it's okay for it to just be like, yo, like we love the same stuff. What are, what's on our minds? What's on everyone's minds? Um, and it can get hard. You know, one of the things I'm sort of facing five years into this, and particularly right now is like the more professional I, I get, like the more this is the center of my world, um, the less that spark of it being like my passion um, like it's, it's no longer just my passion, my obsession, right? Like those, the, like those days are, are gone. Like there's responsibilities and, uh, this is increasingly my job. Um, and so that, um, that, that there, there's, there's fun tensions there. Uh, the stakes keep on getting higher. Um, but what's nice is I still get to have these moments where, uh, I meet someone I don't know who's who's been involved in it as long or if not longer than I have. Um, I am, I am not like the old man in, in immersive theater. Uh, I'm just maybe the most visible old man <laughs> in immersive theater. And in that moment, uh, it's usually, you know, this, 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 uh, getting reconnected to the, the power of the work, um, which, which gets back to this idea of, you know, these moments where we invite people to suspend disbelief this and step through the magic circle, complete the circuit and become part of that imaginal world and hopefully then complete their little hero's journey and come back knowing that they have that agency, right? Like, like one of the great joys of an escape room is you go in, particularly if you win, you go in, you solve it and you come out and you feel like you can take on the world. Like there's, there's no challenge that is beyond you. 
uh, at the end of that moment. It is a rush. And, um, like so much so that I know that if I had more time and if things had come down in a different order, like I might spend even more time in, you know, covering escape rooms than we do. Luckily, so many people cover escape rooms and we're, we're good friends with Aspiras that there's, there's sort of, you know, we, no pro will go out when a room is aiming to be immersive or is borrowing immersive theater techniques. But for the most part, I let everyone else like cover the beat. Now, do you, are you seeing an increase? I've, I've been noticing an increase, at least in the talk of immersion in escape rooms. And I, I actually, before, before we did this, I listened to your latest episode about where you interview Andrew Pebble. And I, I just did escape my room um, in New Orleans uh, last month. And when you were talking about the lobby, like, yes, absolutely. Gold standard. Oh my gosh. Can't believe it. Um, And, and for, you know, it, it's something that I don't see a lot of, but I am seeing the word immersive being thrown around. I am seeing owners and designers and creators actively trying new things now to try and like tell a story better. Are you seeing that increase it? Or are you hearing about it at all? Yeah, I mean, it's, so immersive is a buzzword. Uh, it's yes. a word I, it's a word I, value deeply um and try and defend uh and there there are people even in the theater scene who like they hate the word they think it's played out and they've been saying that for like the better part of a decade like this word's already played out and it's like well we're still using it five years later so you're you're kind of wrong there um but you know i also i went to something that was an arena show like they did a media preview yesterday it was just yesterday uh, a media preview for an arena show that's going to be happening and it's going to be going on a big tour. Um, and it's, it's about a, it's about a big, you know, moment in history and they call it, I'm not going to name it because what I saw was bad. Um, and I said like, I'm not covering it. So I brought, I said, I'm not going to cover, I'm not going to waste my time covering this, but they were using the I word. Uh, they call themselves blank, the immersive show. And I saw that and I was like, there's no way this is going to be immersive, but I hope it is immersive, um, immersive, a selling point. It's like something on the back of a box of a video game. And indeed there are video games, there's a video game genre called immersive sim, right? Really? Oh yeah. The the immersive sim. And so something like gone home is an immersive sim. Firewatch is an immersive sim. The, the walking sims, walking walking sims. But, it's an awful name for it, but, but yeah. Right, so like they get called immersive sims, but also something like Red Dead Redemption gets called immersive. Like these games are immersive. And the truth of it is that they're not physically immersive, but the type of interaction that you're doing and the way in which they've built a world creates a simulacra of that feeling. It's There's a little less distance between you and that world because of the fidelity that they're working that world word world and what's funny about when people talk about immersive sims in uh video games no one freaks out about the i word there no one like tears their hair out and go like why are people using this buzzword gamers just understand what it means it means the world is fully freaking built out and anywhere you turn in that world every detail is yeah Yeah, like you can complain about whether the fidelity is good enough or not, right? Um, And and you know, but that's that's kind of it, right? You can complain about the invisible walls, 
right? Right. You know, and <laughs> I can't climb that rock. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, and it's super frustrating. But you, you also get to the point where you know, like, yeah, like I've hit the edge of the world. Okay, did they do a good enough job to make me feel like? I'm asking for more than I should reasonably be asking for, right? Like that's that's a key part of of this whole thing. And I I would say that there's plenty of people who look at it as a selling point. We've had immersive toilets in the past year, right? Like this toilet is an this toilet from Samsung is immersive. Like Samsung calling a toilet immersive. I think oh, they're just calling a toilet immersive. Call a toilet immersive, and it's oh, like it's, it's immersive for your bleep, yeah. Um, but not for you. If you're, if you've immersed yourself in a toilet, I I guess you're at, you know, the train spotting selfie palace or something, you know, um, that's an immersive toilet, the Renton experience, uh, hashtag trademark. No one do it. I'm buying the rights from Irvin Walsh right now. Um, just going to go on hover buy those rights. So no, um, (laughs) (laughs) no hover is not one of my sponsors. I would own way more URLs if they were. There's there's a there's a qualitative nature here to it, um, and I think that what people are chasing is that sense of presence, is that invitation to suspend their disbelief, and the reward that comes with it. Right? It's so when you sorry, I'm going to interrupt you here. Um, so when you say presence, because I think I understand what that means. Uh, but that that's basically what you just followed up with. Like, it's a sense that you are actually there. Yes. And and that you are present in that world and in that story. Yes. Like and and I think the thing to look at is look at the way Alan Moore, the comic book writer, talks about magic. Right. Like magic is a function of the imagination. Uh, so and and belief uh Belief is a powerful thing. Belief can get you killed. Belief can move mountains. And yet, if you strip it back and go fully right, like most beliefs fall apart under rigorous examination. And the arrow of science aims to like slice away all belief to fact until it hits a point where the tools just aren't good enough to pierce the veil. Right? So, but human interaction is almost based entirely upon belief. It's based on expectation. It's based off social contracts. It's based off of architectural cues uh, and social conventions that are baked into the design of the spaces around us that we are not even conscious of. And when you're playing with those elements, when you're thinking deeply about design and you're thinking about social scripts uh, in terms of how your characters behave and you're thinking about the standard social contract, um, even if you're not doing it in a fully detached, rational manner, let's go back to Escape My Room for a second. You know, the way that lobby works, you can play along or you can, or you can not play along. And it's, it's going to be all right. Like there are clear things you need to do to advance to the next stage. But if you, if you're the kind of person who wants to just start BSing, you're going to get to have that kind of fun too. And so leaving room for, for those moments, those spontaneous moments of make believe, or again, uh, just, just get that moment where the, the level of detail, 
um, is such, or it's evocative in a way uh, that you get the tone of it, right? That's presence. Um, we look, we talk a lot about presence in virtual reality. Um, it doesn't have to be photorealistic in order to evoke the sense. A lot of it is about how you're playing in space and how you're playing with space uh, and not just how things look, right? Um, creators are often, we have a- we have I was a gonna, yeah, that was, that was one of my comments was, um, I know that a lot of, not a lot actually, there's some escape room people out there. When they talk about immersive, they mostly mean- sets yeah and making photo real or <laughs> photorealistic making very detailed very realistic sets and i've played some gorgeous looking games that left me feeling hollow afterwards because the the experience itself didn't match up yeah you could have you can have the best special effects in the world but if the interaction if the things you are doing do not invite you to, because beautiful special effects, be they theatrical effects or film effects or video game graphics, right? I still find it funny. It bugs me, but I also am charmed when people call um, special effects in movies graphics. That movie had good graphics, yo. And I'm just like, oh, oh you're wrong, but you're also right, but you're also wrong. <laughs> but you're also, it's like, anyway, uh, pet, 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 uh, pet amusement, I don't know what you'd call that. That, so much of the time for me, is an invitation to be suspect, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. like if, if you hit that visual fidelity and then it starts glitching on you, it doesn't behave right, you know, then, like, you can think of it almost like, like in terms of Westworld, right? The robot looks great, but it's just glitching, you know? Like, it's just got that, it becomes an uncanny valley effect, um, or God forbid, you've got one element that feels and looks that looks not feels, but that looks absolutely like, yes, that looks like a stake to drive through the heart of Dracula. And the thing it's sitting right next to clearly came from Ikea. It kind of reminds me of the uh, final fantasy movie, uh, the spirits within where like the lead characters were incredibly beautifully animated and the extras looked like they had spent a hundred thousand dollars less on each of them. And it's like, yo, that's not how it works. Does not no bad right. So what's what's the difference between that say and and say what we were talking about earlier, like the exit signs being uh, visible? Is it that these are objects that are supposed to be within the world, so they should be consistent with that world? I would long. F I mean, so there's two things. There's three things going on here, right? So um, the biggest thing, the, the key takeaway is. Um, whether you're helping, whether you're helping the audience do the heavy lifting, right? Um, that's, that's a principle in, in some, some ways that people construct stories is there's always, there are conceits that the audience of a story must buy into. If you can, if you can get them to do, if you can help them do that work, right? Then there might become a moment where you really got to get them to buy into something. Let's take example. Let's take a, the Dark Knight, Nolan's The Dark Knight, right? Not Miller's Dark Knight Returns. I, I'm, a, I'm of a Batman person. Like, let's. I'm not talking the comic book. I'm talking the movie. And also, one is The Dark Knight. One is The Dark Knight Returns. Uh, let's take The Dark Knight. That movie 
which I love, by the way, that movie has plot holes that the Joker literally drives a truck through. Like he drives a truck like a madman (laughs) through parts of that plot, right? There are things that just, if you stop to think, you go, hey, wait a second, how did he... And the emotional arcs of the characters are tight enough. Heath Ledger's performance is amazing enough that you're, that provided those work for you, you forgive, right? Now, if they don't work for you, you're not going to forgive. Most people forgive uh, because for most people, Heath's performance um, is fantastic. Um, and it's not just like, oh, it's sad. He, he passed before, you know, he could do it again. No, uh, no it's a, a crazy it, performance. It, it's an absolutely amazing amazing performance and because of that we just don't care that the joker is a force of nature that he seems to stop exist he doesn't he doesn't have any rules uh and the you know he steps off screen and suddenly he can be everywhere at once it does not matter uh it it and and this is a movie i've watched over and over again so like i know every point where it's like it 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 literally doesn't make sense but when you give yourself over to the experience of the film it emotionally makes sense. I feel the, I, yeah, I feel the same way about a Doctor Who episode that uh, it was like in uh, Matt Smith's first season, the season finale, and it's a whirlwind of an episode, crazy episode, but the emotion is so real and the, and the character arcs are so solid and the performances are so solid that you're just there. But if you, yeah, if you stop to think about anything that's going on, mm-hmm. it's pretty broken yeah. plot wise. Yeah. But you're just, you're just so there and you're just like, I don't care. The ideal, the ideal experience is one where both are ironclad where the emotional arc is ironclad and it's like a, it's like a heist movie. Right. And so one could almost argue that the ideal experiences are Steven Soderbergh's oceans movies, right? Because the arcs are all there (laughs) and they go and they explain, they show you exactly what they did and it make it like I would at least the first two, uh, cause I've watched those more than once, at least those first two, they, 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 they ask you to trust them and then at the end they tell you how they did it and it's all internally consistent and uh, it play it and it doesn't even feel like it actually plays on luck like there's one big gamble that they can do it at all but everything's planned down to the to the detail a heist movie a great heist movie um, I think most people who are obsessed with plot and who like hate something like the Dark Knight they want just a really good heart they want a really good heist movie and indeed you know, the opening of the Dark Knight signals that it's a heist movie. It signals that it's playing with those tropes. If you are engaging people emotionally, if you are engaging with them in a way that invites them into your world, if you're if you're giving them a chance, not forcing them, right? And, and some and some people do want their suspension of they want their belief battered down, right? They want to come in skeptical, and they want to be battered down. And honestly, I, I don't really know how to design. I don't know how to design for those folks and for most folks who I think are better served by inviting them in. But if you can invite people into your world, you free up folks to give themselves over to the experience to feel like they're there and to kind of get us back to that fundamental 
thing. I mean, when we were kids, we all made our own fun. Yep. Right? Like children, even even YouTube hasn't, I think, <laughs> robbed every everyone of that ability to make their own fun when they're kids. That's something that in in the escape room world um is is just possible i mean what's funny to me about escape rooms as as a as a vector of immersive is that this is physical location-based entertainment right and people talk a lot there's there's conventions and there's folks talk a lot about lbe about location-based entertainment and what they're talking about is they're talking about arcades they're talking about you know, VR rides and VRcades and casinos. And they're, they're talking about anything that gets people out of the house spending money. Um, and escape rooms are part of that world. But what's really amazing about this vector is that this idea of a live action competitive or cooperative. And, and really for most escape room games, cooperative like most escape room is p versus e right uh pvp is only starting to kind of happen this idea that, that that can be part of the mix and that it doesn't necessarily have to just be the idea of escaping right like it it's just pve or pvp physical so you you've played a, a few escape rooms i think i i don't keep i don't keep track but um uh, it, it's, it's, <laughs> I don't keep track on the one hand and I have friends who've played so many that like I deliberately stopped counting cause I'm just like, you know, I'm never going to hit your guys' number. So just yeah. like, you know, <laughs> I've played a lot of, I've played, I feel privileged in that I've played a lot of good ones and just a few bad ones. Um, oh, that's good. Yeah. I've been <laughs> you very, have the as friends, so yeah. they could warn you away from all the bad ones. Uh, Definitely. But, I guess my final question for you then is is more along the lines of do you see them going more sort of do you see more of a merging of immersive theater and escape rooms in the future or do you see them becoming their own unique form Look they're going to they're they're going to continue to learn from each other they don't need to hybridize in order to survive some will hybridize uh you know I, I'm I'm I love the fact that strange bird just managed to like get their, their plans signed off on for their new one. They just announced that today. Yeah. It was the saddest day when we went and, and we found out when we were going, cause we went to new Orleans and we also went to Houston to play their game and we couldn't, and it was so sad, Yeah, but we, we did hang out like all day with them. So that was also fun. Yeah. Um, I'm in the middle of like writing some guides and I'm like, Oh, they're not open right now. What am I going to direct people to? It's like, and then it's like, oh, yay, they're going to be open. Thank God. Like, I won't. I'm writing that for someone else. And it's like, the editor won't yell at me and be like, oh, like, this isn't even open. It's like, it's going to be open. It's going to be open. It's great. Uh, Or at least I understand it to be great because I I have not gotten to go do that. And I wanted to. That's the thing. It's like, oh, good. It's going to open. Like, I'll, I'll go visit. You can use it to. This is a thing. I was having a conversation with someone yesterday about this. It's like. It's like with VR, it's like with any tool. What is it that you're trying to do? If you're gonna use this stuff, you need to have a purpose for it, right? I could imagine someone who's got, say, the ambition of a Caden of the basement, who looks at what they've done and goes, yes, 
I'm going to tell my story using escape rooms and make these like multiple chapters in it, yada, yada, yada. But they're so interested in their lore. They're so interested in the characters that they're creating that they're not interested in the experiences and the puzzles or in completely making these like film set level environments that just make you go, holy crap. And so they miss the point of why to do an escape room, let alone one that has an actor in it, right? If the thing you want to do, and there's also, it's, it's fine to play with it. If you want to go like, oh, hey, what would it be like to have kind of a, a natural hint system, right? By having it be an actor, right? But there's also a layer where it's like you put an actor in the space and suddenly you've got another dimension of play, right? If you're interested in what that can do, and what emerges and so you're interested in emergent play. And so it's a room that, you know, maybe has less of a linear pathway to it. That's enabled by the person, right? You know, and that person like suddenly that's not just an actor, that's a game master. And not just in the sense of like, you know, the person who's putting the buttons and resetting the room, but like more like, no, like your D and D person at the head of the table, it's your game master and space for people to do that. And for that to be happening in real time, in physical space, or similar things in the digital space, um, then if that's what you're interested in, if you're interested in, in those dynamics, then go for it. I would never recommend that someone picks up a tool, except to experiment with it, right? Like, if you want to pick up a tool and experiment with it and play around and say, oh, is this going to make a better thing? Please go for it. But, like, do not, do not think that because something's popular that it is the hammer of the day and that everything is that nail because the other thing you'll find happening is people will pick up that tool, but they'll try and do the thing they know how to do with it. This was the problem with that arena show I saw the other day, right? Is that they, they built themselves a space that allowed them to do 360 projection and they gave them some other affordances and then they proceeded to make something that really felt like a proscenium show. And because it was a three-quarter thrust circular kind of almost like a almost like a circus uh, layout, and I've hell I've seen I've seen Cirque du Soleil shows. In fact, I I saw a Cirque du Soleil show. I, I I worked concessions on Verakai years ago, and I saw I got to see it twice. I got to see, I won I won the internal contest to get the VIP seats, and I got to be down like fourth row, center, or whatever in the nice space. And that was the second time I saw it, and I was like, oh my god, this is great from this angle. The first time I saw it, I was extreme house left up in the nosebleed area, and I thought the show was garbage because they had staged this show, which was in a three quarter surround you know environment. So that all of the energy of it was pointing down stage center. All of that action. They were creating these stage pictures for the people, for the director who had clearly sat at the tech table the entire time <laughs> and said, it's like, it looks great. <laughs> yeah. For those of you who don't know what the tech table is, the tech table is where all the designers sit during tech rehearsals of a show and they're, they're in a proscenium stage and they're, they're making adjustments, right? And just as a, as a follow up to that, a proscenium stage is kind of your classic stage where you go, you have a, almost like a little 
tableau in front of you. It's it's what you when you think of a theater, you're probably thinking of a proscenium stage. Exactly. The proscenium is that part that's like it's that archway. And like there might a thrust would be something in front of the archway. <laughs> this is also where the name of the show comes from. No proscenium yeah. means it's it's because you're in it, it. Yeah, it's like you're in it. There's no proscenium. There's no archway between you and the material, right? Um and a thrust means that uh, the stage comes down further and you feel closer to the action. But again, it's in relation to a proscenium. So like, you know, in Verakai up, up in the corner looking down and like it just it sucked. And so I'm at this I'm at this arena show and it's doing the same stuff. And I'm just crestfallen. Crestfallen one, because there's gonna be that one theater, if they pack if they pack that theater on opening night they will instantly have served more people than most of the immersive theater shows in Los Angeles can serve in uh, their entire run. And those people will be told that this is what an immersive show is. And it is not immersive. And frankly, it was kind of boring. Uh, the parts that we saw, maybe, maybe the other stuff, but it is, it is certainly not immersive and they're not even using their projections in a way that shows that they understand that they need to play with perspective in a 360 environment. All of the energy is centered along the traditional proscenium access from downstage center to upstage center and to upstage left and right. That, that V of energy that is what uh, a traditional proscenium has and then you know in the renaissance once they they come up with like perspective like the the psych the the drops in the back create that inverted v going backwards to create that vanishing point into the back that that little diamond shape is where theater has traditionally happened in the west for hundreds of years um and so that's where all the energy is contained and they're just they're they're not they're not talking about perspective. They're not playing with the affordances. Uh, and they've taken these tools. They've got three, they've got a three quarter thrust stage. They have circular projection. They, they could, they could create an immersive environment. They really could. There's nothing stopping them, but they understand how to make that traditional spectacle theater. So they use the new tools to make the old thing and the gap. That's that, a good, yeah. that's a good term for it. Yeah. And the, and the gap that happens is that that is the value of disappointment right there. You have, you have these, these other tools and you just went and did the thing you always knew how to do. Why? And, and creative, creative people do that kind of stuff all the time. And I just would tell people, don't <laughs> like, don't pick up the tool, right? If you yeah. want a hammer, pick up a hammer. If you have nails, right. pick up a hammer. If you have yeah. screws, get a screwdriver. And on that note, I will say we are, we have been talking for quite a while now, uh, but these are really good conversations to have. And I think there is a lot, you know, as much as I think immersive theater has been around a bit longer than escape rooms. And I think, as escape rooms go down this route of splitting off into the different genres, you have your physical escapes, you have your more narrative-based ones, you have ones that combine all of them, much like video game genres and that. I think that there's, you know, there's, you can do nothing but gain from learning from 
these other mediums. And I, I, I don't know if you're in agreement or not, but um, one of my questions was going to be, you know, what can escape rooms learn from immersive theater? And I think you just explained a whole lot of it. And I really like your comment on presence in it. like how present do people feel in the experiences that they have that they are engaging in so thank you very much for for coming on and, and talking about all of that i'm always glad to have the opportunity to rant to people who've never heard me rant before <laughs> <laughs> And as and as much as you know, I say to to owners and designers out there to always go around playing all the escape rooms, go around and check out some immersive theater as well, because there is probably something you can learn from it and really pay attention to what you're feeling during those experiences. I myself haven't done too much immersive theater yet. I have um, I have tickets to escape tapes, which is happening in Toronto in July. Uh, but if you want to go if you want to find out where immersive theater might be happening near you luckily noah also has a blog a review blog and with lots of interviews of upcoming shows where can people find that you can find everything we do at no com. uh we're at no proscenium on twitter we're at no underscore proscenium on instagram we're also at no, at no proscenium and it's spelled n-o-p-r-o-s-c-e-n-i-u-m uh or that on facebook and we have a facebook group that cover that talks about everything immersive like everything mm-hmm. immersive that's called everything immersive and you can find that on facebook by typing in everything immersive or if you go to everything immersive.com it will redirect you to the facebook group it's an it is um you do have to ask to join, but that's just because I always wanted people to opt in. Um, and people still like add their own, their friends. It kind of drives me nuts, but I just, I approve those, but I, I like it when people, I like opting in. I, I hate being forced into groups. Ugh. Uh, yes. Yeah, so go check those out. I think you, you guys have a Slack too, right? We do. We have a no proscenium Slack. Uh, Errol's actually on it. There's about 1200 people. There's about 6,000 people in the everything immersive group. Uh, and about 1200 people in the slack. So like much smaller than the, the escape room communities go. But again, a lot of that has to do with, um, with just, you know, how th- low the throughput is on a lot of the work. Well, thank you so much again, Noah, Noah, for joining me today. I'm pretty sure that I could talk for another three hours on this subject. I feel like we just started scratching the surface of all the interesting things that we could talk about with immersive theater and escape rooms and everything in between. But I do need to eat and possibly drink some stuff now because it's Friday. Woo! Awesome. And <laughs> sorry. Awesome. Awesome. Um, but yes, so if you need to find Noah, just look up No Proscenium and the podcast is the first one to appear in the Google search as I found out this morning. So that's awesome. Thanks again, Noah. Thank you. And I'm just going to talk us out now and there's nobody here to distract me. So poor Noah, you don't know this, but one of the traditions that happens is that I will do the outro and my co-hosts will try to distract me much like Errol did when we were first starting this podcast. So 
Room Escape Divas is brought to you by Inverse Genius. You can go to inversegenius.com to find other fun podcasts just like this one. You can also go find us on our Facebook page. Just look up Room Escape Divas. Click the like button. You can email us, roomescapedivas at gmail.com. We love getting emails, lots of questions and everything. And of course, if you are on Twitter, you can use the hashtag redivas. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye.